when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. George Bush doesn't care about black people. They have a Black History Month, but we don't have a White History Month. Well, all we've ever been taught is white history. If it was not for the love and respect shown to me by black women, those right-wing, ultra-conservative, alt-right haters, they would have me believe I'm too black, I'm too confrontational, I'm too tough, and I'm too disrespectful of them. But now, I know I'm simply a strong black woman. We're in a time where corporations are treated like people and people are treated like things. They promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean-spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be about. What is bad is not what they are doing. What would be bad is for us not to fight back. Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LPFM in New Orleans. We are proudly streaming live on WBOK 1230 AM. If you're tuned in on 1230 AM WBOK, welcome to Resistance Radio and welcome to WHIV. My name is Mark Allendary and with me as always, looking debonair as always. <laughs> Oftentimes I say the smartest political mind in the room, but I think uh, we will do an exception for today because I think sitting to the right of Kenny is the smartest political mind, uh, certainly in New Orleans, and we'll get to our guest in just a second, but it's such a pleasure to be back here in the Three Keys. We have a great room. Three Keys, can we hear from y'all? All right. We are broadcasting live from the Ace Hotel. (laughs) Jason knows how to bring in the audience, so Kenny. Um, yeah, excited to be back for our monthly installment here, and I just want to plug our podcast really quick. You can find this episode and all of the episodes on our show by searching Resistance Radio New Orleans. It's on iTunes, on Google Play, and recently, it's on Spotify. So I will be, Jason, I'll be looking to see if you have subscribed, too. Very nice, Um, Spotify. And yes, I am looking great today. I have, for folks who can't see me listening at home, I am wearing these bright red pants. I figured I had to step it up today because our guests is always bringing the drip everywhere he goes. So I right. knew he would come in with some sort of like ensemble that would like offset your like bowling shoes that yeah. you always yeah. wear. Um, and so I, I, had to, I had to put some effort in today. Well, you know, as always, Kenny always uh, has the appearance for somebody on radio, whereas Jason <laughs> always has the appearance of somebody who's on television. So The funny thing is he came and he was like, you look nice in those nice pants. I was like, I know, I had to. The funny thing that, that made me think about is that like, 
Toxic masculinity is so entrenched in like <laughs> men and like everywhere. The black, and the, the it black community everywhere. that like Jason came in and said, "You look really nice," and of course I went, "Nah, man, you look good." Because I couldn't just like I couldn't just like take a compliment. And it's just like, good lord, the, the, un, you're, the you're untraining that we all have to do. Resistance radio, you'll never get compliments yeah. uh, from over here. So, exactly. but let's let's get started. And did, Absolutely. Are we? Are you good with everything? Yep. Good. All right. Well, we're super happy. We're here uh, on Movement Mondays, as always. Thank you to the Ace Hotel for making this happen. Uh, we could never do this without uh, Lenny and Axel, so thank you guys very much we for can the do work that Lenny. you guys did. We can do without Lenny. Get out of here. So it's a pleasure to have Jason uh, uh, Williams here. Uh, council member Jason Williams was first elected as council member at large on March 15th, 2014, and reelected again on October 14, 2017. A native of New Orleans, council member Williams has worked tirelessly for the betterment of New Orleans and continues to do so as a member of the city council. He had the opportunity to spend his formative years in both Atlanta, Georgia, and New Orleans. He graduated from the prestigious Woodward Academy in College Park, Georgia, before returning to New Orleans to earn a bachelor's degree from Tulane University on a full football scholarship as well as the Martin M. Kelly Leadership Award. Councilmember Williams is also a graduate of the Tulane School of Law, where he received the honor of being inducted into the prestigious Order of Barristers based for his three years of excellence in the art of courtroom advocacy. Shortly after graduation, Councilmember Williams started his own law firm, Jason Roger Williams and Associates, which he continues to manage to this day. As a member of the Louisiana State Bar Association and the Federal Bar Association, he was appointed to serve as the state court judge at Criminal District Court by the Louisiana Supreme Court in 2003 after tackling a series of high-profile cases as a criminal defense attorney. In addition to working as an adjunct professor at the Tulane School of Law, Williams also has worked as a legal analyst at various uh, media outlets here in New Orleans, uh, as well as the Times-Picayune. Councilmember Williams has served as the conflict panel for the Orleans Parish Public Defender's Office and the Federal Public Defender's Office for Eastern District of Louisiana. He was selected as a fellow in 2016 for the American College of Trial Lawyers. As a staunch advocate for the community development programs, Williams has served as a board member of the Audubon Nature Institute, Partnership for Youth Development, the Children's Bureau of New Orleans. He still serves as the member board member of the Innocence Projects of New Orleans. In 2015, he received the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center Mondale Brook Award for fair housing leadership and civic participation. In 2017, Williams received the Form for Equality Acclaim Award in Advocacy for the LGBTQ Community. In addition to spearheading New Orleans' revolutionary Smart City Initiative, Councilmember Williams has and continues to focus on fiscal responsibility, public safety, and criminal justice reform. He was the leading advocate on municipal bail reform and the first ever budget allocation by City of New Orleans to early childhood education. He's married to Liz Marcel Williams, has three children, Zoe, Graham, and Xavier, and, and, and also serves as motivation to make New Orleans an even better place to live in the future. With that, can we get a rousing welcome to <laughs> Councilmember Jason Williams uh, here at uh, WHIV. So, so he's, he's, do he's done some stuff. Yes, like say he's accomplished. accomplished the funny dude. thing is, like, as awkward as that was for him to read that, that was very awkward. We've learned from the past to not let politicians introduce themselves. Uh, um, we love her, but we had Kristen Palmer on as one of our first guests, and she basically filibustered like <laughs> half the show, just like saying, we were like, introduce yourself, and she like spoke oh, no. forever, 
And we like couldn't inter- interrupt her. So he's like, you know what? From now on, we're going to do the intro. <laughs> no, yeah, it, was, it was great. She was great. <laughs> she <so>. was great. <laughs> it was still hilarious, though, because she just kept talking. Um, so I have, before we jump into sort of like nitty, so just to give folks an idea of what we're going to do, we're going to talk, we did a little bit about Jason's background. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit about Black History Month and some of who your black his- heroes are, given that it is Black History Month. Um, later on, we're going to get into some of the councilman's 2019 priorities, and then also looking forward into the future beyond that. And then towards the end of the hour, we're also going to be talking about a partner, um, a project he's been partnering with the Small Center on, who's also here in the back. Thanks for coming, guys. Um, about the project called Undesigned the Red Line, which we're going to talk about later. Um, but with that, though, I'm going to say hello. Thanks for coming. Hey, guys. Welcome. Thanks for you know taking the time. I'm, I'm sure there's stuff that you could be doing. This is fun. I'm, 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 I'm sitting down and hearing your bio read. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> that's awkward. <laughs> it's uh, it's only because you've been incredibly accomplished. So right. again, we thank you so much for being here. I'm glad so, to be with you. All. So my first question for you is: Growing up, it is Black History Month. So growing up, who were your heroes? Who were your black heroes growing up? As you like reflect on Black History Month, reflecting on it, I, I would I, I list probably three: um, Arthur Ashe, um, Muhammad Ali and Richard Roundtree, but Richard Roundtree because of a role he played, which was Shaft, um, uh, in some early movies. Arthur Ashe. You're aging yourself there a little bit. Well, yeah, look, um, (laughs) I wasn't around for the opening of it, but (laughs) soon thereafter, I was able to catch up and see that movie. But Arthur Ashe, um, not only was he just accomplished uh, as a scholar and as an athlete, but he also, um, he took up the mantle of something that was not particularly popular or, um, or even talked about at the time. Um, and it's surprising the number of folks who um, ostracized him, um, who considered him to be an ally in, in, in other civil rights fights, uh, which he was a huge part of and a huge uh, philanthropist in, in terms of sponsoring and, and, and funding things. Um, but when he came out uh, in his early conversations regarding HIV, uh, a lot of people ran from him. Yeah. You know, it was not popular then. And, and he, a lot of people made up a bunch of stories about him, and it really spoke to how heroic he really was. Um, and then Muhammad Ali, I don't think you really need to say much about him. Uh, similar, similar sort of passion, though. Um, thinking way, way beyond the things that affected them, uh, not just pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, but actually putting yourself in harm's way after you found the limelight, which is a very different thing. A lot of folks do that, and that is their limelight. These guys had success uh, in the world sense of success and then put themselves on the, on, on the for the time being, for that time, the wrong side yeah. of issues, yeah. uh, which was the right side of history uh, and the right side of the moral compass. So those guys for sure, and Richard Roundtree just for, um, as a little black boy, wanting to see what cool looked like, um, that's what it was. Because when you grow up in the hood, regardless of whether you are going to a private school or not, you, you know the gray areas, right? You know, no, nothing is all good or all bad. When you're walking down the street, you might smell something that smells a little funny. It's not quite a cigarette. It looks like a cigarette, right? And uh, that might be the same guy that works on your mom's car. And so everybody has it, it sort of fits into what makes up life. And I thought that movie Shaft 
really sort of encompass that for me. So it, those guys, it, when I think back on Black History Month, would be yeah. my heroes. My my chef was was Samuel Jackson. So that, that's that's oh. the age that's oh, the age bracket. Man. That's the age bracket that y- I'm your in. beard wouldn't tell it, but you're a child, <laughs> man. <laughs> I do. I very much appreciate what you said about Muhammad Ali because I think that it's constantly forgotten that. At the height of his career, he did that. He lost his like, be- he lost his best. He was years like twenty six years old. Right. When he, he, he was lost his ability, license to fight. He lost yeah. his license. To he fight. lost his his champ. They took away his championship uh, status and lost his license to fight. And I think he even went to jail. No, he didn't go to jail. Yeah. No. He almost went it. to jail. Yeah. Uh, and, and look, he was supposed to go. Uh, and oddly enough, Thurgood Marshall, another person who I look highly upon, was not a big fan of the stance that um, that Muhammad Ali took. Uh, as, as related to the Vietnam War, uh, but in the end, he was one of the people who uh, made it so he did not have to go to jail, but he was dead broke, and people forget those, that's a lot to, to be dead broke with many kids, as Muhammad Ali had, <laughs> is, is a very precarious thing, uh, so much so that he, he took his gold medal and threw it uh, in the lake, because he just, he felt it was worthless if he right. could not speak his mind in his own country. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I think that ties really well, really well into what we're talking about, what we're about to talk about, where moving forward from that, those experiences you had growing up um, through your time in a public defender's office and private fa- practice, and then being elected to the council and now being council president. So thinking about this year, so as you go into this year of presidency, um, which we know is gonna be your last, because we know you've already announced what you're gonna do next, but what are your priorities with this last year on the council? I am uh, as about impatiently as I can um, trying to push for ways of institutionalize some of the uh, criminal justice reforms that you've seen. Um, they've been more robust than they ever have been on the state level and the municipal level. We've had municipal bail reform. We've decriminalized uh, marijuana. Um, at the same time, we have Governor John Bell Edwards pushing on that same um, uh, push on that same gas in other respects and other parishes that don't quite see themselves quite as um, uh, left of center as New Orleans is, but we've got to figure out ways to institutionalize those things so that regardless of who's on the council, regardless of who the mayor is, regardless of who the governor is, we don't roll back to a time that we know didn't work. Can I, I want to follow up on that. Um, something that we love to do is like explaining how the processes work. I think it's something that is one of the main tenets of our show is talking about sort of how does the government work so sure. that folks, educating folks so that they can advocate better. So when you say that these things haven't been institutionalized, what, is, what does that mean? So there's a commitment to reducing the jail size at, at Orleans Parish. There's a commitment to decriminalizing low-level nonviolent offenses, um, making sure that if a person's involved in a mental health crisis or an addiction issue, that they aren't that we aren't paying for them to be warehoused mm-hmm. for chunks of their life. I mean, just outside of the Ace a little while ago, there's about seven or eight police cars, and the, the route, it appears, I don't know for certain right now, but it appears the route of what occurred was a homeless person in distress. And police were called, that person was arrested, someone was concerned about how that person was treated, they engaged, they were arrested. You know I mean? I mean, all of that, is, is a person in crisis yeah. and not really where we want to be wasting our police resources. I think yeah. a, a doctor or a therapist probably could have handled that situation a whole lot better. So right now, that's not institutionalized. 
Um, institutionalized would, would, would mean when the person was in distress on Lafayette um, uh, Alley, um, the law would have required a mental health professional to go to that scene and deal with that issue rather than a police officer dealing with, he's got so many tools in his tool belt, a taser, a gun, and some handcuffs. None of those tools are gonna be helpful in that scenario. Yeah. So w I guess what I'm trying to do and, and what this council is actually trying to do, and this governor as well, is create laws that dictate how people should be treated for the next 300 years, which would be very different from what we've had so far. Yeah. If you're tuning in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary. With me, as always, is Kenny Francis, and it's a real honor and pleasure to have Council Member uh, Jason Williams uh, joining us here live at the Ace Hotel. Um, I want to ask about one of your other priorities, one that you and I have actually worked on together. Absolutely. Early childhood education. And um, I think it's, we could sit here up here and talk numbers and statistics and research all we want, but that seems, frankly, as, as an educator, Frustratingly, they have very little effect on changing things. Like I could Welcome sit here and tell you that an for doctor. every dollar that you spend on early childhood, you get 40% rate of return. If I told you, if I came to you and said, hey, Jason, I have this investment property with a guaranteed 40% rate of return, you would give me your life savings. But for some reason, we don't do that with early childhood education. So I would love for you to talk about the work you've been doing around that. So uh, as you said, we worked together on a working group to try to figure out ways to find other revenue from the municipal level to the state level, just w national level, nonprofit, just where we can f find dollars to grow those seats. And you're right, Kenny, it is a better investment than Apple stock when they, when they were just starting off. I mean, the rate of return is so high, right? What the work that's happened now, the $1.5 million that's attributed to this work, in 15 years, we will see real dividends in the city of New Orleans. We will grow a middle class. But for me, probably why so much of the work in criminal justice reform is so important is because it's all tied together. You know, um, giving people opportunity. Uh, making sure that people can make good choices and aren't forced to make bad choices. Bad choices, that's what early childhood education really, frankly, is. I mean, and it's not just the 15-year investment. It's the parents who now can go back to work at the Ace Hotel or the Hyatt because now they have child care. And, frankly, what's most frustrating, what I found on the council my first four years, is that the criminal justice system was literally bankrupting everything we should be spending money on. Yeah. Uh, we were pouring so much money into uh, having thousands of people in a pretrial jail. We were spending so much money on the prosecution of people for everything and trying to give them the maximum amount of time. Uh, so much money on over-policing that we could not, we did, no money was left over for early child education. No money was left over for streets or parks. Or, or, or investments in sewage and water boards so that we can go underwater, yeah. right? So that, oh, that, that bloated criminal justice system is bankrupting all the areas that are truly important. And frankly, those things would, if we invested in them early, like early child education, we could shrink Wouldn't the jails. Wouldn't in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's a front gate. Right. I mean, it almost seems as though that the system, the way it's set up now, is leading to more people 
to uh, uh, end up in, in the criminal justice system. And by stopping and by investing more into the uh, early childhood education, obviously, as you just said, we would be uh, uh, stopping that bloated uh, uh, system as it exists right now. I mean, I mean, if you really think of this, the Koch brothers, are, are, agree right. with the ACLU right. you, on so this issue. So I was at the uh, cha Chambers of Commerce, and you spoke at length at the importance of childhood education, and it was great to see that because uh, I, I think it's important for people to understand. And like Kenny was saying, the rate on the the return it's is amazing. just it's insane. And and when you don't do that, you end up in a system that we are now, and the system that we are now. Clearly, people aren't happy with, and there needs to be a massive course adjustment so that we end up in a system where education should be prioritized. Absolutely. I mean, think about the fact that a few years ago, we were the incarceration rate in the world. We were the incarceration rate in the world, the highest incarceration rate in the world, but yet we were still one of the most unsafe places. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So clearly, that is not <laughs> getting not us working, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, and I, I always show that statistic, or I talk about it from the perspective of Hep C or or addiction. Whenever I'm talking about harm reduction or addiction in my professional life as a lecturer, I always say we're at the highest rates of incarceration we've ever been, the country and Louisiana, but we still have the highest rates of Hep C from IV drug, and opioid is still a massive problem. So obviously, the carceral system is not the way to go. Wait, you mean the war on drugs didn't work? Yeah, I thought it was the war on poor. <laughs> it's <laughs> war, it's yeah. a war on people. And, <laughs> yeah. and e even Nixon's strategist oh, yes. has come out and, 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 and admitted, admitted that exactly Absolutely. what it was. Yes, of yeah. course it was. Yeah. And, and we know that. Uh, so I have to ask, because I'd be remiss for not asking this. We're talking about criminal justice. So in our city, we've seen these pop up with these crime cameras. And I want to talk about that for a minute. That I think that sort of goes against what you're talking about. That's not proactive policing. That's not reallocating resources to places that are more that are more proactive and that are gonna get us more bang for our buck. Which I think that's the thing that like I personally struggle with is that like I don't expect the entire world to have the sort of like justice views that I have. But like I think where I struggle is where you can't even convince people to care about the thing that they claim to care about, right. dollars and cents, right? right? When you can make this intelligent argument that this strategy that we're doing is wasting the money that you're constantly screaming right. that we're spending wrong and then people are still against it. That, I think that's where it starts to feel like you're just like banging your head up against the wall. That's a really interesting question, really interesting point, and I, I can tell you it's something that I struggle with, Katie Hunter-Lowry and Hashim Walters and Aaron Washington here on my team as well. We struggle with that as well. When, when, when those cameras were initially discussed, uh, everybody in this room, and I dare say everybody in the world, thought that we would have another Clinton in office. Uh, it was before... Uh, the presidential election. And the discussion, the early discussion of those cameras was uh, an extrapolation of the body cameras that police wear. And those cameras monitor police activity. And, 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 they, and they can be used to exonerate people and they can be used as evidence. And those cameras uh, on polls the initial thought was that they would be used the exact same way. If someone was accused of a crime and, and, and someone said that they were at the Ace Hotel on Monday at 6 o'clock and they clearly were drinking at Molly's in the quarter, that camera could be used for that very same purpose, right? So, Kenny, you're right, it, but the application can go a Absolutely. Can go terribly yes, that's the and, and that is <laughs> what's scary yes, because under concern. a Trump presidency, you could have these same cameras yep. 
not used to exonerate people, not used for truth and justice, but to profile people they might think um, they want to detain because it's some ICE policy. Yeah. And that is certainly not the policy of our city because we're a welcoming city and we have made it clear to the NOPD that they never use any of their resources for any immigration um, policy. So you're right. It is a struggle and that will be a constant struggle. And I think the push that I would I would give you and the rest of the council on that is like, you know, part of the reason why we do this show is to be able to have these conversations is the transparency of it, I think, is something that gives so many people so much pause is like understanding who has access, what it's for, um, what like understanding the intents and the way it's being implemented. Because like you said, implementation could like can very very like wi- widely vary. When you talk about institutionalizing things, absolutely, regardless of who's sitting in these seats, right? It's like you're not going to be council president forever. Right. In fact, you're not going to be council president after next year. Well, and yeah. so it's like yeah. well, ideally, I mean, he's already publicly announced. <laughs> if things I mean, go well, right? right. If like things go well, it's, it's and so like that's the stuff that gets like really like 1984-esque really really fast. Right. Um, and so I think that's the part that like folks would push on is the necessity for consistent transparency about these processes. And, and let me and let me add to that question too, is that the locations of where the cameras are, they're they're not equally located around the communities. There's some communities where there's a, a um, there's more dense cameras th- than other communities. I mean let's call it what it is. Jason's a plain speaking guy. The cameras right. are in black communities or not in white communities. Absolutely right. Look, at the end of the day, they're also in communities where there's illegal dumping in New Orleans East. Uh, Councilmember Wynn has been battling a litter and tire dumping and mattress dumping issue there. And so her goal was to use those cameras to track those license plates down so that we don't have to have police officers um, following cars full of tires. But the devil truly is in the detail, and it goes back to institutionalizing what our desired impact and intent is so that it can't be misused next week, next year, what have you. Um, when I walked um, onto the council my first year, there, the ice, there were ice raids on Broad Street surrounding Ideal Market. And, and these federal agents were demanding police cars to set up boundaries so that people could not get out. And men, women, and children who matched a certain description were put on the ground. There is nothing American about that. There's nothing constitutional about that. Um, and, and, and so we put a halt to it. But those officers until that time thought it was their responsibility to cooperate with federal partners. And so institutionalizing, creating laws to protect people from institutions that are supposed to be there to protect them, it's, it's an unyielding job that, that we can never look away from. I want to take that opportunity to sort of like switch gears here. So we've been sort of um, alluding to this for a while. You have publicly announced that you plan to run for district attorney of New Orleans. Um, we could spend the entire hour talking about all of the awful things that Leon and Ken Nazaro have done, and we're not going to do that. Because um, I think something that I would love to do is I would love to hear you talk about what does a progressive DA look like? I think that's something that we've learned over the last few years, particularly with the work that people like Sean King and the Real Justice Project has been doing, is that district attorneys wield massive amounts of power. Um, the types of power that I don't think average citizens typically know about, that it is not a hyperbole to say, depending on the disposition of a DA and the way they use their powers, a DA can have a significant effect on either 
closing down the, the mass, incarcer mass incarceration Absolutely. or proliferating it. And we've seen what our current DA has done. Our current DA has been a huge part of the proliferation of mass incarceration. So my question to you is, as you prepare to run for this office, what does that look like to be a DA that uses that power to bring it down? So, you know, one of the things that has to happen is we have to be really honest about crime and criminal justice. And, and, and we've we haven't really done that in this country. There's some great books that have been written from ghetto side to lock, lock them up to the new Jim Crow, but a, but a progressive DA is gonna not, there, there's two pieces of it. There's reform and there's public safety. But those two things often are talked about as mutually exclusive. They're the same thing. Uh, most of the victims in poor towns, most of the victims in this town are also black. But if you were to talk, if you were to do a poll about what a victim looked like, that would not be the case. So the idea that poor people in a poor area don't want crime solved, that is a false narrative that is perpetuated by the media. The, what, what happens though is those folks have seen so many people who are prosecuted on trumped up charges and given so much time that they don't want to cooperate with that same system. So a progressive DA has to work to rebuild the trust that has been broken. One of the things that I did on the council was we, we created a prosecutorial integrity unit, which was a partnership, supposed to be a partnership between the DA, uh, Leon Canizero, and the Innocence Project, where they would look at closed cases uh, with an eye towards making sure that the right people were in jail, right? As opposed to having uh, case after cases we've seen, we have more exonerees, I know that work from the Innocence Project and doing pro bono work there, we have more exonerees in this area of the South than anywhere else, which means innocent people are in jail, which means the person who committed the crime is still out there. And so when you start talking about murder and sex crimes, that means they have been left to reoffend. So a, press, a progressive DA does a few things. One, his diversion program starts to look like our current court dockets, right? So you can start dealing with mental health issues, addiction issues, without criminalizing a person at all, without getting a conviction. After your arrest, you can start getting services and paying a debt back to society. If you're talking about theft, um, that can be dealt with in municipal court with no jail at all. So people sitting in jail because they're poor, that can be eradicated by the choices of the DA and you can still have full restitution of anything that was taken. Um, and it also allows your DAs, your ADAs who are as overworked as public defenders to focus on murder cases, robbery cases, sex crimes cases, which are very complicated. But what happens now is your average ADA is so overworked, they run towards a low-hanging fruit. So they, 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 they go to trial on simple possession of cocaine cases. So you, have a, a, you might say, oh, we have a very high conviction rate. Yes, because you're convicting addicts of having chump amounts of dope, but, but murder, rape, and armed robbery cases get pushed down the line and pled out, and so victims are reharmed, right? So a progressive DA has to sort of create new defaults. Does that mean new measures then, or new metrics by which you measure success? New metrics, right, not new measures. I'll call it new metrics. So 
Um, I'll never forget after the uh, Cordell Hayes trial, that was uh, the case in which Will Smith um, was shot. Um, they were talking to his friend Deuce McAllister, and somebody put the camera, put the microphone in his face when he was on the camera and said, are you happy? You all won today. Are you happy? And he said, no, I'm not happy. Nobody won today. Um, that kid is not going to see his father for God knows how much time, and my friend is not coming back. There are no winners and losers in the criminal justice system, and as soon as we can pull that sort of those labels off, then we can get to resolving cases to create more public safety, right? Um, as opposed to setting up traps for people to fail, Right. giving people the tool sets they need so they don't recidivate and they can stay in the workforce and still remain um, uh, pillars in their families and in their communities. So you're speaking about rolling back the carceral system. Yes, exactly right. All right, that's, that's good so news I for imagine me. you're I, not going to get a lot of donations from the private prison industry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, the funny thing is, you know, we don't have any private prisons here, but if you look well, at... Well, we have two in, the, in Louisiana. But not in, 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 in New Orleans. Orleans Parish, but in, right. in New Orleans, but you look at having 7,000 people detained in Orleans Parish Jail pre-Katrina. might be a private prison system, but I guarantee there's some private people making a lot of money out of yeah. those 7,000 bodies yes. that were there. Right. Yeah. I think the carceral system is like something like 215, no, it's, th it's, uh, it's multi-million dollar annual uh, industry. If you're tuning in, you are listening to 12.3 WHIV, this is Resistance Radio. It's such an honor and pleasure to have the president of the New Orleans City Council, uh, Council Member Jason Williams, on air uh, with uh, myself, Mark Allendary, and Kenny Francis. Can I ask a question? Or did yes, you I, I had a, uh, sort of a point of clarification. Okay. I want to go back for a second to something you said. You were talking about the, um, you were explaining like what ADAs end up doing yeah. and how they end up like pleading the other cases out. Something that I would love to hear explained, I've never really had explained to me, is what is the obsession with conviction rates? Like what, what does that come from? What is Because like I have a worldview that human beings are very largely governed by the incentives that are put mm -hmm. in place and anyone who's a friend of mine has heard me go on the spiel and random strangers who I met today have heard me go on the spiel about incentives, what is the incentive system set up that like we have this obsession with conviction rates where ADAs are obsessed with like how many convictions can I get? And then let me add to that as well is that, cause I was gonna ask, and so it ties right into what Kenny was asking, is that is that have something to do with all the exonerations that we have seen? And yeah. so I, I, I think Kenny's question is, is a great one cause I think it does tie, there is some perverse incentive uh, for these convictions that have led, and we've read books, uh, uh, and I've read books uh, of uh, how um, we have seen district uh, DAs d do unscrupulous tactics to put people in jail that have ultimately uh, led uh, to the wrong person. I mean, like jailing victims of sex crimes to force them to testify. Well, <laughs> for the yeah. sake of so, so for the sake of winning, right? Like, for the sake goes, of winning, it goes back to that term. And so what I propose, and a number of DAs have done this, I don't claim to be, uh, to have cracked any code. Larry Krasner, Kim Og, yes. these people are doing a, a, a yeoman's job of redefining and reshaping the criminal justice system. And so the fascination with conviction rates goes back to how do you define success, right? And for years, that has been defined with, you have this docket of cases, how many guilty verdicts or how many convictions can I get? That defines how successful I was as a DA or as an ADA. The problem is 
the, the, the measure sh needs and should be public safety. Yeah. How safe are we? Are sex crimes going down because perpetrators have been taken off the street? Are, are murder rates going down because the real perpetrator has been uh, properly uh, prosecuted and convicted, not left in the same neighborhood for the family members of the victim to see and have their blood boil and retaliate. Uh, a number of the homicides that are committed in this city are retaliatory yeah. and date back years. It's like the Clampets versus the McClintons. Yeah. And folks don't even realize where you're, it's, aging, you're aging yourself. Right, right. Where it started. <laughs> well, I'm old. Let me just say that. I don't have to, I won't have to age myself anymore. But 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 if we define success as how safe are we and how, how safe do we feel? All of us. And I mean, poor people get to vote on that too. Now, not just people at Audubon Park, but people at Shakespeare Park. When I call the police, are they, are they responding to Central City as fast as, as they responded today when that homeless person was having his issue? I know that's not the case because I live in Central City. My neighbor called because of domestic violence disturbance at the end of my block and no one ever came after an hour. And a kid got on the school bus and went to school traumatized, right? So we have to, we have to change what, what, what our measures of success are and you have to hold the ADAs accountable and make it very clear to them. I mean, uh, Larry Krasner created a manifesto which said to his ADAs, if you want to charge someone more than the minimum, you need to be able to explain to a supervisor why why we should spend more tax resources to, why this person is so offensive to humanity that we want to spend more tax dollars paying for his family and paying and to hold him in jail longer than the minimum. And, and to be clear, Larry Krasner is the DA in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Right. Yeah, so uh, so along those lines, I, I you know we have seen the and I'm going to ask you about uh, you, your relationship with the uh, uh, Mr. Alton Sterling and his family. Sure. We see a rush to convict, uh, oftentimes poor individuals, right? But when you when we're looking at police officers that in in in, in your role, obviously as being an advisor and a counselor to the uh, uh, to Mr. Alton Sterling and his family, we have seen a clear evidence, and we've seen it around the country. So of course, what we saw here in Louisiana was not a surprise, but it was a it was a hard. It, it was something hard to swallow because it was so local. It was so obvious. The cameras were were there, and uh, and we saw that Attorney General uh, Landry chose not to uh, to oppress charges or convict those officers. And so um, I was just wondering if maybe we can comment on that. Yeah, I'd love to. So you know, when it when a police officer is accused or charged, every piece of the Constitution every bit of due process is laid to bear for that officer. And I think what, what the poor community wants is they want that same... Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, it's fair. Every right. bit of it's due fair. process, right. of every course. piece of the Constitution needs to be applied there. Right. And, and it's not, frankly. And that's why people get upset. I mean, I don't think there would be as much outrage if, if that same scrutiny yes. of investigation was happening when um, a young black male is charged with a crime, but it's not the case. Um, you know, to, to, to put another light on, 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 on that issue, you know, there's a, a book, Slavery by Another Name, right? And it talks about how at the turn of the century, um, 
or just before the turn of the century, um, a black male might be walking home from work one parish or one town over, and uh, a justice of the peace would pick him up and say, you're trespassing or you owe a fine, and they bring him to the local jail. And before his family can find where he is, um, that person is leased off to um, standard uh, coal. Or, and, and now he's working to pay off that debt, which was originally trumped up. So there is a, there is, has been since Jamestown this sort of um, criminalization of blackness that has never been discussed. And, and, and that has, it, it's never gone away. Even when there was indentured servants who were, who were of, a, of white complexion and of black complexion, they would, an Irishman and a, uh, and, and a, and a person from the Cote d'Ivoire might run off together. They created laws that said if you were caught running away with a Negro, then you would have to serve his time as well. So these laws are built to sort of uh, create those divisions. And you're going to hear from um, Redesign um, um, the Red Line later. And, and, and when you really look at history, and we were a very young country, you can see how these institutions didn't just happen, but it was all created and and there was always government input in creating that inequity and that unfairness. And to pretend now, because we've had a black president, that those things have, will just go away, is, that's naive. And so we have to work harder. Um, and, and, and I think having the president we have now shows, shows us just how hard we have to work to make sure that things don't get rolled back. Because I don't think any of us thought we would find ourselves listening to some of the things we hear today. Um, so I want to I go back to something you were saying before, um, because I think that you make a really good point, and I, like, I'm seeing where you're going with it, about like institutionalizing things, because we've seen the negative effects, right. as you just so eloquently put, of hundreds of years now of institutionalizing white supremacy right. into every single part of our system. So if you're looking forward and thinking about like, what being like, a progressive DA looks like, how do you institutionalize that? Because it's also, it's often it's it's ultimately who has that seat. Sure. So like, obviously, getting rid of Canizero is part of the uh, the equation, but it's not just about one DA. Right. It's not just about Jason Williams. It's not just about Leon right. Canizero. How do you institutionalize that? So and, and let me just say real quickly that the opinions that are expressed here <laughs> belong to Kenny Francis alone, as well as Mark Allendary. They do not reflect uh, the board of directors at No Cedar, WHIV. They do not reflect anybody else at WHIV. Or Ace Hotel. These are or Ace Hotel or anything else. These are I'm just not Kenny's opinions. If we get sued, it's your money they're coming from. If, if they want my, my college debt, right. they can Anyway, have these it. are Kenny Francis' opinions. I have negative these, dollars. They can have my student loans, too. Student loans. I Anyways, mean, so Sally May's got all my value, so. <laughs> Jason, please. So, I mean, and, and Kenny, your point is solid. Life is really short. I mean, I felt like a, a new, I couldn't find the, re the restroom at City Hall for a month, right? Um, and so now I'm in my second term. So it goes by very quickly. So it means we have to be very vigorous about trying to codify things so that they don't get changed. Um, and so on the city council level, the way that we do that is by creating laws and legislation that say you must do this or you shall do this in this situation. I think the way you institutional or the way I plan to institutionalize things as DA is be hyper transparent 
about the changes that are being made so that the public real, and that's the other thing that's so scary about district attorney's office throughout the country, it's all behind closed yeah, no doors. Yeah. Yeah. Those policies are internal policies. But I believe that by making new policies that are based upon equity and fairness open and, 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 and doing, I mean, not just press releases, but manifestos that explain why you are doing certain things, then not only is there an explanation to the public about why you're doing this, but they can also check your homework. They can see what your results are. The data will either show crime is going up or crime is going down. And, 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 and these policies about putting fewer people in jail and focusing on violent offenders, the right violent offender, encouraging police officers to take their time and do a thorough investigation, not just arrest the first Negro that matches the description, because I seem to match every description on WDSU, and probably you too at this I point. Do. Right. Yeah. Um, so doing that, I think the institutionalized part is the public sees what you called for, and they see the results of what you did, and they demand the same thing whether you die two years in office or retire after two terms. Because yeah. they want th they want good results. Yeah, it's as uh, President Obama uh, would always say: is that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Absolutely. Yeah. And as Absolutely an infectious right. disease doctor, I, I love that. I mean, what you're talking <laughs> about is worse. what right? you're talking about is pretty bold, Jason. Like you're talking about real accountability. You're talking about accountability in a way that, like, whether what you do works or not, we as the public will be able to, like, I like I'm the type of person. Most of the people in this room are the type of nerds that are gonna go read your manifesto and be like, did it work? Like you know, that, that should be the gold standard for everything, though. I mean, yes. seriously, if that yeah, existed right. for the sewage and water board 10 years ago, we wouldn't have the issue we have right now. And so on the council level, we hired Jeff Asher to create a public-facing dashboard for us. That dashboard lets you go online and see what crimes, all of them. And people always talk about crimes. You've got petty crimes and you've got horrific crimes. And so we have to be specific about which ones we're talking about. But this dashboard, it, let, it lets you see all of them in their categories so you know just how safe your block is or your street is. That sort of information is possible now because of the age we're living in. And we should have that level of knowledge and information in real time in every way that it affects us in life. I, couldn't, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, it's, I can check everything else on my phone. Why can't I check that? Absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely right. And, and look, the faster you can get rid of an elected who is not doing the job you want it done, the faster you need to do it. Yeah. And if you have the data, you can do it. Which is why I say this is a very bold thing you're proposing because there's a lot of people at elected positions that have a lot of, again, going back to incentives, a lot of negative incentives to not have accountability, to well, not have transparency. If it's a place you want to go and grow old, then, you, then, then sure. I mean, Al, Al, um, Mark Twain, what did he say? He said uh, politicians are like diapers, right? And uh, I was talking to my, my wife about that, and I said, oh, that's funny. That uh, they, they were saying... Um, I, Mark Twain was saying that uh, they start to stink after a while. And, and, and Liz is like, no, no, he's saying they're all full of shit. Oh. Right? I mean, but you, you got to look at it how it goes. But, but it's, a matter of, it's a matter of perspective. Jason pays his own fines. So. <laughs> I will pay this, my own fines. This fine. is a radio. I'll, I'll use my personal credit card to pay my own fines. <laughs> That's actually um, we funny. actually uh, got a, a question texted to us. Oh, there, can, can we do one? Sure. 
All right, and and I'll uh, I'll help walk you through this okay. as well. So uh, this is uh, uh, an HIV specific question. Okay. So in the age of U equals U, are you familiar with U equals U? That's undetectable equals untransmittable. Yes. So people living with HIV, if their viral load is undetectable, they're unable to transmit HIV. So in the age of U equals U, as a progressive DA, how will you make sure people living with HIV will not be marginalized by laws that criminalize HIV? For example, like failure to disclose. Yeah. I got I, that's, that's a hard question. So. It, it, it is a hard question. And, and I think, you know, there are a number of things that we've run into on the council level that have been not my subject matter expertise. Yes, I understand. And understand. so what I do in those instances is I try to pull a few folks in from different walks of life to have them help me craft what works. You know, I, I wouldn't venture to try to figure that out on my own. I wouldn't want to talk to someone who has been on... Sure, sure. And I swear to God, this was texted to somebody that was listening. I swear to God, I was not. No, but, I believe but, it. but let me see if I could just kind of sure. help s set up the issue here is that in the past, when HIV was not a uh, was was not known uh, for transmission or when transmission was unclear and there was a lot more fear and stigma associated with HIV, there was a hypercriminalization of people living with HIV. You add on top of that communities of color more likely to have HIV, uh, people who inject drugs, this sort of stuff. There was a lot of fear and stigma associated with it. We're at a point now where that uh, that level of fear and stigma doesn't need to exist for many reasons. One, because it was wrong to have it in the first place. But now we know that people who are undetectable don't transmit HIV. And in the past, there have been laws that have existed that people who don't uh, disclose their uh, uh, their status uh, will be criminalized uh, for spreading the quote-unquote AIDS virus is what the statute uh, says. And, and so... Somewhat of a long-winded response, but I, I do appreciate you uh, uh, committing to pulling together a group of folks that understand this and, and addressing that. And, and absolutely, any law that would uh, further stigmatize anyone should not be on the books. I mean, and, 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 you know, I'm going to pull that out. And this uh, year, it could that. be <laughs> HIV, but it could be anything. Yes. I mean, I mean, that's it comes from a place of ignorance and fear. And so to the extent that anything like that exists, I mean, and, and granted, I'll say this, a lot of things that make a whole lot of sense to us in New Orleans, you go up to the Capitol if you want to see how dysfunction yeah. works. It's a, it's a place of, of clear dysfunction. But absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you want to move yeah. into undesign? So we have yeah. a little bit less than 10 minutes left. Um, sure. So I wanted to talk a bit about undesign the red line and first starting with what is it? Let's well, start with that. I've, I've got a little oh, intro. Yeah, yeah so I have a quick intro here. Undesigned the Red Line is an interactive exhibit exploring the history of race, class, and U.S. housing policy, how this legacy of inequity and exclusion continues to shape our communities. Visitors to Undesigned the Red Line are left with a strong impression of the historical forces that made New Orleans and other cities the ways they are now. The exhibit is on display at the Albert and Tina Small Center for Collaborative Design, which is located at 1725 Barone Street through April 1st. It's an amazing exhibit um, for a young person to see. It's also an amazing exhibit for an older person to see because a number of people have lived through yeah. redlining but still don't quite understand uh, how it came to be and the long-standing impacts of it. I mean, whether you are... Um, uh, an older white person who benefited from the GI Bill and, 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 and believe that, you know, you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, or if you're an older person who, an uh, older male who was a black GI who did not have those same benefits, 
and it also really speaks to how people can do racist things, although they may not consider themselves to be racist. I found it completely fascinating in the sense that you, you would have banks deciding you know, what was desirable, what was not desirable, using a person's color, moving into a neighborhood, devaluing a person's home. Now you've got this person worried about the value of the home that they've invested in because this other family's moved. And so that institutionalization, again. Yeah. Right, it's that codifying. Yeah. codifying. But in this, pl in this example, it's codifying in the wrong direction. In the wrong direction. Right. And, and has long-lasting impacts because then you look at what happened with white flight. Right. And then you look at what happened with the disinvestment of urban cities across, across the country. I mean, that should, be, that should show you the data. That should be the science. The fact that the exact same happened with all these major urban yeah. corridors. Right. And then you, 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 you flash forward to seeing people realize, you know what, it's better to live in a city. I want to go back to the city. Right. And Same then seeing everyone coming back in there and then what that looks like and, and, and the impact that it has on people who were there and stayed there. And then the other piece of it, it's not just a housing issue. It, it is wholly involved in public safety, wholly involved totally. in the criminal justice system, yes. and flows right into Nixon's Southern strategy, yes. and flows yes. right into the war on drugs. Yes. And it really is, although it's called, it, it, it talks about redlining, it really is just what it means to be American. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's fascinating, and, and I'm looking forward, to, we've invited them to bring um, this to the city council so that we can share it with other folks who might not make it down there. It, 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 and people need to see things. It's one thing to read something in a book, but when you see what's happening from an institutional uh, level in, in, in 1912, and then you see what's happening from, from the sort of um, fighting back perspective at that exact same time, you know, and, you can, you, and, and this exhibit tracks that. So you can see what was hap what the power structure was at the time, and then what the pushback was, what the resistance, for lack of a better, if I could borrow that phrase, was at the time. And just seeing it all with dates and times and visuals is truly remarkable. Yeah, you know, it, 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 a couple things come to mind. One is that with you codifying, codifying or institutionalizing these, uh, these laws or policies that are founded in equity, if we start doing these now, we know or hopefully know that in 20, 30 years, our society will be a more just place, just like these laws that were, and I will say that they were, uh, you know, again, like the GI Bill, I think that's a great example, and I'll give you an example of somebody who benefited from that, but how that codified- Any in, white in, person in, who was in the well, military yeah, well, at that time? Well, I'll say Bill O'Reilly. So Bill 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 O'Reilly, yeah. who doesn't understand white privilege, he's a bootstrapper, right? Yeah, but bootstrapper, bootstrap. right? But his father, his father was uh, uh, got the GI Bill. They lived in a in a community. He grew up in a community that was completely redlined, or or African Americans were not allowed to move in. And he, and he, you know, scratches his head. Unfortunately, he's no longer on Fox Fox News anymore. But was well, I don't understand this thing that you're talking about white privilege. Well, you know, these were laws that, that his family was able to take advantage of that were not happening uh, in, in a, equally amongst, sorry, amongst the, the rest of the country, amongst all communities. You know, and the other thing that was so, um, I guess, salient about this exhibit is it shows that this was, these weren't accidents. 
This yeah. wasn't happenstance. Oh, no, no, this you is know, definitely not right. accident. Right, this was for purpose. Right, that, that, that a group of people weren't just not as hardworking as another group of people, right? right? And so that, that also what, what I took away from it is in order to fix these things for my kids and my kids' kids is that's not going to happen by accident either. Right. It's going to take the same amount of governmental yes. intrusion yes. and right. work and resistance and codifying right. to build a better place. Right. And another example of that, of course, is the um, the jury, the, the, unanimous, the, the, the unanimous juries. This is another example. And in that example, we actually have written out that this was done purposely to uh, maintain the white supremacy. And even then, it took us 110 years to change That's it. a long right. time. That's all, I mean, seriously, props after Barack Obama was president, we got to right. that. Yeah. Right. And it was still like we were sitting on pins and needles yeah. the we day of the election to see if yeah. we could do this. So now we get to point to Oregon and say, your turn. Yeah. yeah. I, I, barely, I really appreciate your focus on codifying because like, just thinking about that and thinking about like your viewpoint in that. Um, it makes a lot of sense that like regardless of who has these seats, because again, going back to incentives, right? You can't control what people are gonna do. Like this idea that you're gonna change hearts and minds on its own, right. and then all of a sudden we're gonna wake up tomorrow and be like, hey, we should stop treating black people like crap. That kind of sucks. Right. Like that, like that's that's sort of a reality. And I think that like to the point you were making, a lot of people, specifically white people in this country, felt that way after Obama got elected. It was like, okay. We let you have one. Racism is over. Right. Let's move on to the next thing. Uh, but I, I really appreciate you saying that. But that's yeah, and and the, uh, the other thing that we don't do is have honest conversations about race. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's okay. I mean, some of the best conversations a, a, a partner can have with another partner are the uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. Those Out of those uncomfortable conversations come, come great moments. And, and better existences. And so we need to start having some of those tough conversations. And when we do, they'll get easier because we realize the earth will not fall apart because of that tough conversation. Yeah. Um, and I know that we're out of time. So yeah. I want to say, first of all, thank you for coming and, and on. And also, Jason, do you have any? We're, we're going to be getting off the radio in just a minute. We're going to open the floor up for a minute or two for questions. Do you have any just last couple words or before we wrap up here? Well, I'll just say, I mean, I appreciate what you all do. Um, a lot of times people don't want to talk about the tough stuff. Yeah. Right? And, and it, the, the mainstream media will not do it because you can't sell commercial time. That's right. And we always, I always say that we can't have a political revolution without a media revolution. And that's what we try to do here on WHIV. Thank you all. Well, thank you for your time. Um, thank you for coming. Um, and also just in general, thank you for, I think that like one of the things that I appreciate about, appreciate about you um, from when I first met you on a personal level and also some of the, like, the professional interests we've had is that you're always willing to do this. Like whether we disagree or agree. And I, you and I have been in a room where we very strongly right, disagree. Right, and right, right. I have always very much respected your willingness to engage. It's something that is not, unfortunately, not the norm. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not a normal thing that a sitting city council president would come and let me ask you tough questions like this. Um, so I've always appreciated that about you. Thank I you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for Jason Williams. Jason. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, and we're going we're gonna to tune out of the radio. Yes. And then uh, if you want to do some questions. Yes. Or, um, do you have a minute so or two we have some a minute or two for if anyone in the crowd wants to ask Jason a question. And then please stick around because we do have some folks from um, the small center who are here to talk a little bit more about Undesign, the red line, um, and to give you information about where you can find the exhibit and answer any questions that you might have about that. Cool. So.
We're going to use a, a teacher strategy here. I'm going to do some wait time and sit silently until someone comes and asks a question. And if anybody has a question, we just go up to the microphone. Hey, hey, man. Hey, man. Um, I'm curious, what, what pillars do you think are necessary to really do real reform with, within the criminal justice system here in the city? Because, you know, of course, we've, we've done some, some, some stuff on the state level. Sure. But, but certainly in New Orleans, we have some real I issues. Bail, detention, and, and then re release stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you hit on one. Um, bail reform is huge, right? So the biggest issue when you think about bail is – it, is, it, it, it does not take the worst offenders off the street. It takes the poor people off the street, right? So you have people in jail because they can't afford to make bond, right? Harvey Weinstein is going to make any bond that's ever set and doesn't make him any less of a predator. And so we have to think about it that way. So if, if the system is set up and it says you are charged with this offense and we believe that these offenses, these violent offenses, are such that you should not be allowed to come home until your charges have been dealt with, then that's going to apply equally regardless of race, socioeconomic status, what have you. Um, and everyone else, this, this larger bucket, these folks go back to work, back to their families, but that money that was traditionally lost through money bail can now be used for services for mental health services, anger management services, impulse control issues, addiction issues. Another area in terms of how we think about police and prosecute sex crimes and domestic violence cases. Um, as it stands right now, there are oftentimes situations where a victim of a sex crime or a DV case actually serve, has served more time in jail than the perpetrator ends up getting after the case is resolved mm. because of the idea of winning and losing. And uh, Kim Ogg, the, the DA in, in Houston, made it very clear. She ran on this. She said, I will never put a victim in jail to make my case. And all that means is she's strong. She's smart. There are a number of other pieces of evidence that can be used to prosecute a case other than a victim's testimony, right? And so those, those are two key areas, but really just looking at the world, looking at California, looking at Colorado, and, and, and realizing chasing petty drugs, is that does not make any city safe, right, at all. And so we have to sort of refocus. So, so I would say those are the, are the major pillars that you'd wanna see. Diversion has to be robust. A diversion program is a time where you have a real stick and a real carrot over a man or woman's head. And it's an opportunity for you to get them to get their GED. It's an opportunity to make sure they go to work for a year and work, take drug tests, go to drug treatment. And you can do all of this without felonizing them, right? And so and think about how much cheaper that is, right? I was in court not long ago, there's this thing called drug court. In drug court, you had a host of lawyers on, on the defense side, a host of lawyers from the DA's office, the judge, his, the minute clerk, the sheriff deputies, 
all that stuff going on, and there and all that drug court is just monitoring a person's um, uh, progress, treat, progress and treatment. That's more expensive than Betty Ford. You think of all those people who are getting paid and listening to that. Why not just fund the treatment? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You're right about that. Um, anyone else? We'll give time for like maybe one, maybe two more. Well, Josh. there's two. Go, go ahead. We got time. So we've de decriminalized marijuana here in New Orleans. Um, there's a lot of progressives that are running for president that are calling for legalization of marijuana on the federal level. Uh, New Orleans is more of a left-leaning uh, city. Where, where do we go from here, and what do you see in the future around legalizing marijuana, whether that's in Louisiana or starting here in New Orleans? Taxing it and spending it on schools. I mean, I mean, there's a look, look at Colorado. I mean, the school system is flush, right? And crime has not gone up. Um, we are a sportsman's paradise. You got people growing rice, growing sugarcane. There are a lot of agricultural places. They could probably benefit from a new cash crop, right? So I, I can promise you that I don't think, I think the city of New Orleans, the state of Louisiana would look a whole lot different if it was not just decriminalized but legalized from how our education system looks how our mental health system looks how our prisons would look everything yeah um another point i want to make on that before we take the last question is speaking of colorado and i'm sure you you know this but it just blows my mind every time i think about it in the state of colorado they had a law on their state constitution that if you collect more taxes than a tax that you instituted was originally intended for you have to return it to the to the voters. They made so much money off of legalizing marijuana and then paying for schools and paying for parks and paying for infrastructure that the state of Louisiana, the state of Colorado, literally spent six months figuring out how to return tax revenue to the wow. citizens of, of Colorado. Can you imagine? That's quite that a problem. Re, can you imagine yeah. that? That's yeah. quite a problem, isn't it? Like, can you imagine Jeez. that? Imagine yeah, that, that if that was your a job hell right of now, a problem, figuring right, out how to right. give us money back. Right. Like that's, the, that's the mayor's crazy. trying to get figuring out how to get you know her fair share you know and <laughs> exactly. right it's like literally that's, her fair that, share that's what they're they're struggling with right wow. now I know we Josh, have did, Josh did you have a question I just want to say Louisiana wish they had that problem yeah but uh, you demonstrated beautifully how your mind and your heart is in the right direction for social justice and criminal justice I wanted to hear more from you in terms of because it seems AGs are judged by how they treat the least among us and how they treat the most powerful among us, sure. you know, multinational corporations and those who run states, city governments, et cetera. I wanted to get your perspective on, you know, how as an AG do you represent progressive values in dealing with uh, multinational companies that violate laws? Well, you know, so on the, on the state side of things, there's some limitations to that, but there certainly is if, it, 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 a lot of cross-collaboration between U.S. attorneys and the attorney general now, you know, Right now, our AG, um, rather than looking towards those areas you've described, would, 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 would rather not prosecute the officers um, on video uh, escalating a situation and then shooting a man in the back. They'd rather not prosecute him, right? But you look in other states and you see people looking at the makers and producers of OxyContin and some of the strategies they use to convince doctors to prescribe it, right? So there, there is room uh, and there is space to, to be equitable in what you think is harming your community. 
and, and, and you shouldn't always look to the poorest folks, right? It should be equitable, right? Which means sometimes you have to go after the powerful folks. Um, I mean, they're, they're, it's, the, the examples are pretty countless. Uh, you can look at Wall Street, you can look at banking, you look at all these areas that have caused a whole lot more harm than your neighborhood weed dealer. Careful, you're losing your donors by the minute. Be quiet. <laughs> Don't listen to him. I mean, especially when you see Elliot uh, Abrams uh, on the on the federal stage again, a uh, prosecuted war criminal uh, who is now given you know new life uh, to go and be the uh, the diplomat uh, in Venezuela right now. Which I mean, it's horrible. But uh, Elon um, uh, Elon um, Musk was it the Rocket Man? Omar, yeah, Omar. Elon Omar just uh, just did a great job yes, uh, uh, on Thursday, just grilling him in the uncomfortableness of holding the power to account. And so, uh, sometimes you just please, have to market. Please, please do that. Sometimes <laughs> you just have to market, and you have to call it out. Yes, and that's what yeah, she did right. yeah. after she was herself kind of unfairly characterized during the week. Is I, I thought it was unfair. A characterization of being anti-Semitic for calling out the boycott and divestment. I, I didn't think that what she said was uh, uh, anti-Semitic as well, and I'm speaking as an American Jew. I did not feel as though, but I thought that her grilling Elliot Abrams the way she did was excellent. So holding, we just don't see that enough, and I think yeah. that's one of the reasons we are in the situation that yeah. we're in, is you have somebody like President Obama who was like, yeah, I like looking forward. I don't look backwards. And had he looked backwards and put some of those folks in Wall Street in jail as a result of the, yeah, the housing absolutely. crisis, we would be in a different situation. Absolutely. Had he put people who were clear war criminals, had he dealt with the torturing that happened in the CIA, we would not be in the situation that we're in. So I think holding the powerful accountable, that's the whole purpose of journalism. He also had one term then. Oh, was that I had what? He would have also had one term then. Let's be honest about what yeah. it's about. He would... He would have had one term. I mean, I've well, you know, and, and he said that he'd rather yeah. be a one-term president. Well, he would. He, he lied. He didn't actually do that. Uh, well, listen, um, I'm not. I'm glad we I, got two. I, I attack Obama. I'm glad from we got the two left, terms. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad yeah. we got two terms. Um, and we got to wrap up. But yeah, I know we have to wrap up. I do have one more super serious question for you. Okay. How much is enough for Anthony Davis? <laughs> Axel, thank you so much for all the work that you did. Uh, how much, Sonali, how much thank you to Ace Hotel. Dave Rostin, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you everybody at WHIV. <laughs> Jason, Katie, thank you so much, Katie. Appreciate it. Undesigned, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank um, you like guys Like we said, so don't go anywhere because we're going to actually invite them up right now to come up and tell you, oh yeah, we're making you come on stage and everything. Yeah, come on come in on. Have, say a couple words. Gonna say a couple words. Um, so what we have coming up um, is we have a couple of folks from that are part of the exhibit to come up and tell you a little bit about it, um, and then we're gonna let them answer some questions if you guys have some. I think I might have some. So I'm John Sullivan, I'm with Enterprise Community Partners, and uh, we are sponsors of the Undesigned the Red Line exhibit that is uh, open at the Small Center. Um, Council Member Williams gave a really excellent uh, overview uh, of the exhibit, but it really examines history of racial segregation, why our communities, why our neighborhoods look like they do now, um, 
and you know what that means for cities and the people um, that live in those neighborhoods. While we see such disparities in, in values in neighborhoods and, and the outcomes that those have produced. Um, and we had Rashida. We, okay. Um, but um, so the exhibit really uh, examines, um, like I said, the history of racial segregation through um, kind of centered on the practice of redlining. And uh, redlining is the practice of uh, discrimination of lending, um, credit, not allowing uh, good, good mortgage products and good you know, loan products that can build up communities, help people buy homes, um, that limit those from going to certain areas. Um, and this is Rashida Williams with the Small Center. <laughs> yes, I'm the assistant director of the Small Center. Um, so the, the exhibit shows um, redlining maps that were really the centerpiece in the 1930s, these redlining maps were created. The federal government is supporting home ownership in various ways, but it's also limiting where home ownership, uh, um, where it's where it's incentivizing home ownership, and it's largely doing so on the basis of race, on the racial composition of the neighborhoods um, in which they're putting loans. Um, and the exhibit shows that you know at the, at the beginning where uh, home ownership is really taking off. It's taking off as you know the centerpiece of the American dream. Federal government and and government forces are limiting where those types of investments go. So from the beginning, you know neighborhoods are starting off um, on equal unequal footing. People are being separated, you know, by race. Um, white people are, are being encouraged to move to areas that are not integrated. Um, and then the exhibits start showing the rippling effects of that the ways governments try to counter those effects when they start seeing um, the negative consequences um, from those disparities in lending and then how they really just compounded mistakes um, over time because they never really took into effect what the root causes were um, and, and that was the disinvestment in, in you know, communities of color. Yes, and I'm, uh, I'm sure you mentioned earlier, uh, the exhibit is organized into five parts. The first part goes with the textbook de definition of what redlining is, and it also shows a map of the actual redlining maps that the different lenders used. Um, and the second portion goes a little bit more in depth as to how re redlining was carried out. So it talks about the practices, it talks about the different zones, the different redlined um, areas on the maps and what that meant. And usually it had to do with ethnic or racial concentrations in a city. So um, I, as I'm sure John said earlier, redlining was essentially how, uh, how structural racism was baked into the American real estate system and how it permeates until today. Um, and what we see with the affordable housing crisis, wealth disparities, health disparities, what have you. The third board, which is the most extensive board and it's the most captivating, it shows the context of racism in American society, the various social civil rights movements that were happening, and also the different policies that were instituted to carry out redlining, but to make sure that redlining and racist practices had a stronghold in American society. So it starts uh, post-Civil War, 
It talks about reconstruction. And then it goes into the first um, racial zoning ordinance that was carried out in Baltimore. Then it moves on to the specific act of redlining that came out of the New Deal. Then it goes on to um, talk about the decay of the city and how we had urban renewal and slum clearance and all of those things. It talks about the epidemics. And then it, it brings us to the, the present day, which talks a little bit about gentrification and mass incarceration. And then we have more acute stories that couldn't be uh, portrayed on the larger contextual board that specifically have to do with New Orleans stories, uh, how uh, the demolition of the Big Four had carried out, the privatization of public housing. Um, it also has some stories about short-term rentals. And then on the fifth board, it talks about where are we at today with the effects of redlining? And it has an overlay of the original redlining map on top of the current metropolitan valuation maps that show economic opportunity, uh, positive healthcare outcomes, um, access to uh, good schools and what have you. And it shows how there are concentrations of positive outcomes based upon the effects of redlining. And it's very, very, very uncanny and um, eye-opening how redlining has affected all of those outcomes to this day. So it's called Undesign the Red Line. So it invites uh, visitors to think about undesigning uh, the system. So it's not just about showing the history, but getting people to think about um, and put issues um, that we face today in the proper context of how the places uh, were created and how, how that impacted the problems we see today. Um, so we want people to think about how to undesign that system because any system that was put in place and was designed can be undesigned. Um, but we have to be proactive in, in how we do that. Um, so it is open at the small center. Yes, um, Monday through Friday from uh, 10 to 5. And we'll be open for the month of February. And I'm guessing we're going to carry it over into March on Saturdays from 1 to 3. And we also have Red Beans Roundtables panels. Uh, there is one that is happening tonight, which is focused around evictions and displacement in New Orleans. The second one, uh, it will be a discussion with author Peter Moskowitz on his book, How to Kill a City. Um, and it will be focused on a discussion around gentrification in New Orleans. So thank you all for coming. I guess. If anybody has any questions, feel free to ask. Yes. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good question. I, I wish I was smart enough to really answer it. Uh, but no, I, you know, you're getting, uh, you know, it's, how do you separate the, you know, the actions that were happening from the government level from the, 
the attitudes of the people at the time. Um, you know, I, I have a little thing, and yes. I'll let Rashida. So I, I, hopefully the exhibit is appealing to a sense of fairness for, for people. Um, and it's showing that, you know, the, the way things are now is, is, did not just happen accidentally or did not just happen by natural forces. They, it was really something that was um, compelled from the top down, even if it was compatible or uh, a response to the, the attitudes of the day. It was still a system that was wrong. It was put in place and it was wrong. Um, and it, led to, it has led to great disparities. So uh, hopefully the people, you know, hopefully when you are able to put things in the right context for people, that appeals to a sense of fairness for them. They, they see systems um, that have been unfair and the, you know, they see the need to, to undo those. Um, to answer your question, I think that we have to think about context of history as well as psychology and what appeals to people. So I feel like you could look at the solution in a dual part. You could appeal to people's empathetic sides and display all of this information and show historically this has always been wrong and it's never been right and these are the different levels of wrongness that we've allowed to happen or that lawmakers have allowed to happen. Or you could appeal to somebody's capitalist side and say, historically, greed has never truly fully benefited anybody in the long term, right? Um, so uh, the Small Center is a part of the School of Architecture. We liken ourselves to training the next generation of architects. We also work with real estate developers. And what we have found is that also, also uh, we make sure that we encourage people to be more community-engaged practices. Why I say that is because if you are a capitalist and your only aim is to make money, it benefits you and behooves you to add an aspect of community engagement to your process. Because number one, in the city of New Orleans, that is necessary. And number two, communities can mobilize to get a project stopped no matter how much money you put behind it. And we have seen people put millions of dollars behind real estate developments uh, and have had deals fall through because of pushback from communities. So I think it just depends upon what aspect of a person you want to appeal to because if you, if you um, appeal to them in the right way where a person can be... Um, a person doesn't want to seem like a bad person or a person feels this moral compass from within, you can appeal to that side. Or if you can appeal to somebody who only cares about making money, that if your greed is so strong, it will allow you to lose money, I think it will change them as well. Booklets in the back. Cost of home. It talks about affordable housing. <laughs>